0: And welcome to this eighth episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill, and as you know, I'm your guide through this journey of the 19th century with my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott. So just to explain in a micrometer, what I do in this podcast is basically I read extracts from the journals of William written way back in the 1840s, and then at various points I stopped to explain a little bit about the history or the particular sights and sounds that he's just mentioned. Now, not a huge amount to say I want to try and get on as soon as possible to the journals. Um, Just to say the usual thing, though, if you're listening to these on whatever platform it is that you're listening to, do subscribe do leave reviews and things like that and uh, be great to hear from you as well so just to mention there is the twitter page it's called scott of the historic at 3g that's the number three 3g grand tour and you can message me there about anything you want any further questions uh, any more queries that you might have about the journals and so forth also just to remind you that if you're coming to the podcast for the first time and you want to learn a little bit about how these journals have been passed down my family and prepared for the podcast you might want to listen to the introduction episode it's called an introduction to the grand tour so you might want to listen to that one to find out more if you're puzzled and by all means binge listen as a friend of mine said he liked to do um, you can listen to episode one, two, three, four, five, three, you know, you know, you know what numbers are, I'm sure. Now, yeah, I've got to admit that at the end of this episode we're still going to be in Paris. And and the end of the last one I said, Oh no, we're nearly at the end now, and by I'm sure by the next one we will be out of Paris. Uh we won't be out of Paris by the end of episode eight, I'm afraid. But I mean, not that there's anything wrong with being around in Paris. I mean, that's why it gets so many tourists, isn't it? Uh, including William but sometimes it's kind of hard to judge and um, also in the next section of the journals he does start preparing to begin his travels again down through France towards Italy because that's where he's ultimately going to end up as an engineer on the the new railway down there but before he does that he takes a bit of an excursion interestingly by train to Versailles so there must have been a train running from centre of Paris to Versailles by 1840 I might uh, see if I can do a bit of research into that because up to now that's the only other train journey that he's uh, been on before he gets to Italy because he doesn't even uh, mention having train journeys in the UK when he first starts his travels because obviously they're all being built at this time. So yeah, that's about it really. I hope you do enjoy this new episode. There's some quite idiosyncratic things going on there. It ended up being longer than I would have liked, as I said in the last uh, one. I'm trying not to go above 50 minutes if I can, but I think this one will as well. But I hope you can stick it out. Just hang on in there and uh, you get through to the end. That's it. You know, it takes a bit of guts, a bit of resilience to, to listen to me droning on. But I think there's uh, there's certainly some odd facts and things going on in this episode. So, let's start on the journal again. This one begins with uh, William going around the Hotel des Invalides, which is, despite the name, now also a sort of big cathedral and church where veteran soldiers reside. So, here we are. On to the journals again with William. My next stop Was the Hotel des Invalides situated not far from the Palace Bourbon at the bottom of a noble avenue leading from the bridge of that name? The building is surrounded by a dry ditch on the inner side of which are mounted a great number of guns on handsome cast-iron carriages, the chief use of which is firing salutes. Passing the veteran sentinel at the gate, I entered a large garden in which was a vast number of seats and easy chairs. And as the day was particularly fine, a great number of the old veterans were enjoying the mildness of the season. In casting my eyes over the assemblage, and by the old prince I had seen, I was able to recognise old soldiers of the Republic, the Empire, the present dynasty, which was the more easy by their wearing of uniforms of different regiments that they had belonged to. There were men who, when the great emperor, so this, this is Napoleon, who William's talking about here, so there were men who, when the great emperor was but a lieutenant of artillery, had fought with him at the siege of Toulon. There were others who had followed him, when a general, to the burning plains of Egypt. Others, again, who, when he was first consul, had shared with him in the victories of Marengo and Lodi, and the triumphs of Turin and Milan. Nor were those wanting, who in the high and palmy days of the great Empire had fought in the fields of Austerlitz and Jena and those victories that placed Vienna and Berlin at his feet. There were men, too, who had wandered in the blazing streets of Moscow, and shared in all the horrors of that disastrous retreat. Men that had fought in the fields of Salamanca, Vittoria and Toulouse, that had seen Paris surrounded by the armies of his enemies, and his beloved city given up to a king who possessed no sympathy for the French people. There were others also, and them not few in number, who had figured in the reign of one hundred days, and beheld the doom of the empire sealed forever on the memorable fields of Ligny, Brass and Waterloo, men who had fought in the streets of Paris and shed their blood in the three glorious days of July that sent the older Bourbons into exile and cut them forever as rulers of the French people. Having gazed for some time at those old veterans, I entered the portal and found myself in a large square surrounded by an arcade, where the old soldiers can take their exercise in bad weather from this arcade which is of two storeys and open to the different apartments. Directly opposite the entrance and on the upper gallery is placed a fine white marble statue of Napoleon, as it were, looking down upon his old warriors in the court below. Under the statue is the door of the church, which is a large and very fine structure. The dome is considered as the chef d'oeuvre. That's uh, the masterpiece of church-building in the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, there are a number of very fine monuments to celebrate the marshals of the kingdom and empire, great numbers of whom are interred in the vaults below. And now Napoleon himself, after twenty years' rest, on the island of St Helena has been at length removed to mingle his ashes along with his brave generals. Under the centre of the dome, I believe, now rests all that was mortal of Napoleon, On both sides of the centre aisle are placed a vast number of flags taken by the armies of the Empire in their different engagements. But amongst that number, I could recognise not one English one. William's commentary there finishing on a characteristically patriotic one. You think he may have used the word British flag rather than English, but he doesn't seem to use that term very much throughout whole journals. He nearly always refers to Englishness and Englishmen and so forth which I sometimes think is a bit strange it's particularly strange because um, I kind of always thought because of his name and all this and things my mum used to say about my own and her Scottish heritage that uh, that we had this close connection with Scottish history and Scottish what's the word sentiment (laughs) and yet there's absolutely no mention of that ever anywhere in the journals at all william never mentions his ancestry but perhaps being a bit scottish any sort of heritage there any sort of proud references to it at all so i think that was probably a bit of wishful thinking of my mothers to think in the background we had this scottish Heritage and closely linked to the Scottish clans and Clan of scot and all this business. I suppose there must be some link there, but William certainly never, never makes any reference to it whatsoever. So, so I kind of find it a bit funny. I think it was my mum romanticising about our own family history a bit there, and um, I suppose in the absence of knowing, really, you know, she hardly knew her father, and she certainly didn't know. Uh, William or, or Edward, her grandfather and great-grandfather, perhaps you kind of fill in the gaps in ways that you think you can. Anyway, I've, I've got a bit sidetracked there, because I just really wanted to say that this Hotel de Invalids, obviously it's a very grand building. It's actually now the tallest church building in Paris. The dome is 107 metres high, and it's now... As well as being a sort of retirement home for veterans, it's also a military museum and it's also the cathedral of the French military as well. So it's a very, very grand building. I've certainly never been to it, but it's on an extensive site there in Paris. And it's actually a very nice, touching little extract there, I think, that William writes about the all the veterans there and all the campaigns that they would have had through Europe with Napoleon it's actually another example where William actually to be fair to him does write rather nicely about things. Also just a slight mention William is in Paris in about March April 1840 and as he says I believe the remains of Napoleon were returned to this church. This is an example where he must be writing a little bit retrospectively about things that happened because Napoleon's remains were returned in 1840 to Paris, but it wasn't until December 1840 that they actually ended up here at the Hotel des Invalides. It it was actually a very big deal. The whole return of Napoleon's ashes from St Helena, where he'd been buried out on the uh, island in the middle of the Atlantic, became a sort of movement known as the Retour de Sondres, so the return of the ashes, but uh, it was his actual body. It's I suppose more actually you should say return of his remains, but it became a big movement in France around this time because firstly because Napoleon had expressed his wish in his will to be buried in France and particularly in Paris on the banks of the Seine, but also it became a kind of movement about national French pride that Napoleon's body should actually be interred somewhere in France as well, and particularly a prime minister called Adolphe Thiers at the time became a real driving force behind this movement. And he persuaded King Louis-Philippe, who again is the king of France at this time when William's in Paris, he sort of persuaded him this would be a good idea as well. And the advantage of it from King Louis-Philippe's standpoint was that it would distance himself from the previous monarchies of the Bourbon family line. So in a way, it was quite a good way of him demarcating himself from the previous French rulers and monarchs and displaying to the French public that this was a new era. Originally after Napoleon had been defeated the British and other tourist nations were rather keen not to return Napoleon's remains back to France after he died on St Helena as they thought it might be a cause of French national uprising again and possibly the cause of another war So um, that's why he'd been interred on the island for so long. So, uh, you know, it did take quite a lot of diplomatic pressure from France to demand the ashes were returned back to French soil. If you read about the Retour de Saunders episode, (laughs) there are some quite curious things about it. The expedition that was led out there was commanded by Prince de Joinville, who was actually Louis-Philippe's son. Uh, he was a naval officer but he doesn't seem to have been in a hurry to get to St Helena because it took them 93 days to get out there <laughs> and on the way they stopped at Cadiz and Madeira and Tenerife and there was quite a lot of young gentlemen on board so it sounds like they kind of had a bit of a holiday <laughs> a bit of a a bit of a jolly on the way out there to pick up the remains because once they'd done that it actually took them a lot quicker to get them back to France and there's also this curious rumour or tale that during the autopsy Napoleon's winkle for one of a better word his uh, one-eyed trouser snake was removed and uh, ended up being displayed in, in America, in New York <laughs> in uh, some exhibition somewhere and was then sold at various auctions to various people who all claimed it was Napoleon's but. I think this is a whole idea has been pretty well discredited. There was an autopsy and some bits of his intestine and things like this were removed and the odd bit of skin and muscle. And uh, it's much more likely that this thing that was put on display was one of these things. But apparently, when the ladies of New York first saw it, I think for some reason, it resembled his. uh, private parts so that sent a few giggles amongst the proper ladies of new york <laughs> someone at the time described it as looking like a shriveled eel um, so obviously it's not an attractive looking object but uh it is still owned by a family who it's been passed down and um Supposedly they've been offered hundreds and thousands of dollars to buy it, but I think you have to question its authenticity. Apparently, since it was exhibited, only 10 people have ever seen it again, and it's never ever been photographed, so um, you have to question whether it's a fake or, as mentioned before, just was some other body part of the Great Dictator's. When Napoleon was uninterred from this grave in St Helena, he was actually remarkably well-preserved, and apparently he was instantly recognisable as Napoleon when they opened the coffin. It was probably because he was uh, interred in a lead and tin-lined coffin. In fact, they they actually had to, to shave him, apparently, afterwards, because his hair had kept growing after he died. Nice morbid detail there. So William must have read about this. It was probably it's interesting because he probably was in Italy by the time this was all going on, and it was a very big deal, and there was a huge procession once the body got back to France and, and and all that you can imagine, and it was a very symbolic event. So he must have, I suppose, been reading about it in the papers and things like that, and sort of just briefly summarising what he thought had happened here, once Napoleon's remains had been returned. In fact, what happened was when they first got back to um, the Hotel Designers, they made obviously quite a grand altar and sarcophagus and things for him to be placed in. But this wasn't thought to be justifiably grand enough for the great man. So there was then a very long protracted thing which took another 20 years for them to design and come up with a suitable sarcophagus and resting place for him. So if you go there now... His sarcophagus is made out of a red quartz, it's a special marble, and the body is placed in that, and it's right in the middle, under the, the very middle of the dome. And that was finally done in 1861, that he was actually placed in this very grand ornamental coffin and sarcophagus. So if you go there now, you'll see this very grand shrine to his death, and where he's placed in state. My next visit was to the Polytechnic School and the Champ de mars The Polytechnic School and the Champ de mars is situated on the same side and at a considerable distance up the river. It is a vast space of ground devoted to the exercise of the cavalry, and was often used by Napoleon for his splendid military exhibitions and other large assemblages of people. At one end of it is the Polytechnic School and a very large barracks with immense storehouses of corn hay straw wagons and different munitions of war for a large army. I now crossed the Pont du Jena and along the splendid quays to the Tuileries. In the course of my walk I noticed a very large number of boats of not less than two hundred and fifty feet in length and standing a considerable height out of the water. These were the washing establishments of the city of Paris and were filled with women busy at work. The decks were crossed with lines in every direction and a goodly array of weaving apparel and linen was floating in the breeze. Opposite the Louvre and the Tuileries are also a great number of floating baths, elegantly fitted up for hot, cold or tepid baths, and are considered a great accommodation to the city. And here, let me finish today's excursion. Right, so um, I thought I'd just stop here. Briefly to talk about these um, various things that uh, William is observing on the Seine. This reference he makes to the washing baths, and I haven't been able to find too much reference to those. There is a picture or a painting by Van Gogh, done a bit late, about 1885, of what's described as a laundry barge on the Seine. Which is, I imagine, a similar thing to what uh, William's describing here. The one in Van Gogh's painting, which of course in his style is very heavily stylized, seems to have a sort of roof or cover over it. But as I say, that's actually quite a bit later than when uh, William's in Paris. What there is quite a lot of history about, though, is these baths or pools that William describes as floating on the seine that uh, people would bathe in. And actually Paris had a long tradition of these floating swimming pools swimming in the seine itself was banned at the end of the 18th century not because of sort of health and safety reasons or anything like that it was mainly it was mainly done because people thought it was a bit improper people swimming around visibly with little clothing on and so uh, swimming in the seine as I say was outlawed but instead what happened was I suppose someone with an eye for a business opportunity decided to create these floating baths now William calls them a barge. They're very square. I mean, they varied a bit, actually, because each one was designed slightly differently. So I don't know the particular ones that William's looking at. But of the pictures that I've seen, I would describe them as a big floating square sort of Lido, really. So you can imagine there's the pool, and then round the perimeter are changing booths. And uh, then above that, there is a sort of sun terrace as well where people could bathe in the sun and uh, sit in the sun, sorry, after they'd been swimming. The most famous one of these and oldest was called the Piscine de Lidne, which um, went right back to 1796, so it definitely would have been around before William's time. So it could well be that this is the one that he's describing. I have actually seen a picture where there's about six of these big barges on the Seine, but the Piscine de Ligny is the most famous one, or was the most famous one, and it was sort of quite grand looking. The way it was decorated, as William described, was quite posh and extravagant. And that was there all the way up until 1993, when unfortunately I think it got, well it just sank, it just sank basically. There's a, I've seen it, actually seen a That's a television news report from the time where, I mean, it was very old and apparently through its history it had been hit by barges, other barges, and it had had fires on it and stuff like this. But in 1993, this thing, it literally just sank. Um, I mean, it's sort of quite a funny description. The water was taken from the river itself to then be put in the pool and some people describe it as being pretty disgusting and there are other pools where someone says "Oh, well it was so bad they, they hadn't even taken the fish out of the <laughs> out of the water <laughs> from the stain and apparently it became a uh, you know later on in years in the sort of 1970s the Piscine de Ligny I've seen people mention that they were staying at uh, nearby youth hostels and uh, as part staying there they get a free ticket to go to the Piscine de Ligny and uh it became, a, I think, it became a. Well, at one time, it had uh, quite a lot of topless bathing there, <laughs> sorry, or topless sunbathing there, went on, and uh, because it was um, quite close to the National Assembly, this was uh, thought to be too distracting for the members of Parliament to seeing all these uh, these naked bodies nearby. So uh, that was uh, they tried to outlaw that. And then it also became a bit of a gay cruising area, I suppose you might describe it as. There's a, a ladies who's stayed at the youth hostel just in it. It was full of, full of young women and potbellied men. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's kind of seems a fairly sort of unique Parisian thing to have these floating barges on on the water so you you could you could as it were swim on the water in the seine but not actually in the water of the seine and they have actually replaced the Piscine de Ligny with the Piscine de Josephine Baker which is a much more modern design equivalent of what was there now and that's there now apparently that is in the same site or sort of spot on the river where the Piscuit and Deligny was, and obviously it's a bit more modern design, and it has a, a sort of a sliding canopy that opens up during the summer months, so people couldn't take in the sun as well. And it's a quite a almost quite space age looking thing actually, floating on the river there. But yeah, the de Deligny, which is probably one of the it may it may not have been that particular one that Williams. Um, describing I mean he he mentions the baths but they're all more together so by the 1840s yeah there probably were several of these things floating around and it's basically I suppose a, a safer swimming environment than actually being in the in the river itself and I suppose also there was an air of exclusivity as well like you paid to be a member to be able to use one of these uh, swimming baths or floating pools but yeah if you sort of look look them up, there's uh, I think uh, quite a few pictures of these things, but the pisking de Ligny, particularly if you look at that one it's got a long history and you'll see it's pictures of that going right back to when it was first built and uh, put on the river up until uh, the 1990s which was when it uh, finally sank so uh, if you wanted to take a dip in uh, the seine, you couldn't do that but you could take a dip in the Piscine de Ligny. April 1st, the morning of this day was particularly fine and mild for the season, and consequently the gardens of the Tuileries were filled with elegantly dressed people, and a great majority of them were ladies, for the French are a decidedly walking people and therefore there was a considerable sprinkling of rank beauty and fashion present, and I therefore spent the former part of the day in sauntering about there. The afternoon was devoted to ascending and taking a minute survey of the Column Napoleon in the Place Vendôme. One of the finest public monuments in Paris, it was created under the superintendence of Vivant Denon, in commemoration of the victories and campaign of 1805. It is an imitation of the Trajan pillar at Rome, 134 feet high, and 12 feet in diameter. It is of brass, and the material was furnished by 425 cannons taken from the Austrians and Prussians in that campaign. It is covered with an immense number of plates of brass, skilfully united, containing bas-reliefs of all the principal events of the campaign. The top of the column is surmounted by a bronze statue of Napoleon, 10 feet in height, considered to be one of the finest works that ever emanated from the chisel of the sculptor, or the model of the artist. A railing surrounds the top of the column, the view of which is very fine, though similar to that of the Arc de Triomphe in a great measure described in my first day's ramble. The original statue placed on this column was thrown down by Blücher in 1815, and the present one, much finer than the original, was placed on the summit in 1832, The Place Vendôme in which the column stands is a large circular space, in which are many fine houses, hotels and shops. A wide and spacious street from the Church of Madeleine to the Rue Saint-Honoré gives great effect to it, especially to a person standing in the Rue Saint-Honoré. The column in the centre, and the view terminated by the sumptuous portico of the finest church of Paris, namely that of Madeleine, whose architecture and internal decorations, paintings, etc., supposedly surpass anything that has yet been executed in France. But as the paintings were not then finished, admittance could not be obtained without an order from the Minister of Public Works, which I was unable to obtain. Right, so I'm going to stop here, just to say a little bit about this Vendôme column and also the Church of Madeleine. I won't say too much about the column because how William describes it is pretty well accurate, really, in the whole history and everything. And it's one of those things, it's a very recognisable monument in Paris, based on the, exactly as William describes it, it's based on the Trajan column in Rome. William does mention the statue at the top of the column being torn down by General Blucher. He was a general at the time when the Allied forces had occupied Paris after the victory of 1815. Apparently a mob of his men tore down the statue, and the original one actually had Napoleon depicted in Roman attire with a laurel wreath around his head and a toga and so forth, so very much portraying Napoleon as this great classical leader, Caesar, whatever you like. but as William mentions, the one that replaced it was a more modern depiction of Napoleon wearing a typical general's hat of the time. Apparently it was replaced again in the time of Napoleon III, so the one William's looking at is actually the second one, but there was then a third one put in again at the time of Napoleon III that apparently is actually slightly better than the previous one. Just also talk briefly about this... uh... Church Madeleine which William describes as being one of the finest in France. As it's finished and completed now it is a very impressive looking neoclassical building. It was based on a Roman temple. In fact it very closely resembles a smaller one called the Mazon Carré in Nîmes which um, apparently is one of the best preserved Roman temples but this one is uh, much bigger, the Church Madeleine, and it basically looks rather like the Parthenon again, but in a more modern style, I suppose, more modern neoclassical style, and it's got 52 columns that go all the way around the perimeter of it, but it's very big there. Um, Each one of those columns is 60 feet, sorry, 66 feet tall, And so, of course, and then on that, you've got the whole pediment and everything. So, it's a very, very big building. And there was, on the particular site where it is here in Paris, there'd been one or two sort of false starts to try and build a big church there. And, of course, then events like the revolution happened, which um, then halted plans to build something. And then Napoleon came along and he actually wanted to build something there that was a temple or another dedicated monument to his victorious battles. So he decided it would be that rather than a church. So that meant the the architecture of it changed to be this copy of a Roman temple. And, I mean, it is very grand-looking, but uh, as you can imagine, all these projects take quite a long time to complete, so it's all very well having these big plans... Um, But history overtakes the time that it takes to actually complete the projects. So, of course, when Napoleon was deposed and the royalty was back in power in France again, they decided, no, we're not going to have a monument to his victories. We're going to have a church again. So this time it's going back to church. But by this time, building work had started, so they couldn't actually change the design anymore. But the actual function of the building was going to change to be a church gang and uh, it is a very impressive looking building from the outside i can see probably why william is impressed by it and it worked out right that he wouldn't have been able to go inside it because it really wasn't finished until 1842 so um, william's there just if you like on the last moments of it being completed and so you can't go inside to see the uh, paintings being done uh there's a famous fresco, I think, inside, which I imagine he would have liked to have seen by an artist called Jules Claude Ziegler, called The History of Christianity. But rather strangely, Napoleon features very prominently in the History of Christianity, too, according to the depictions shown in this fresco, because he's sort of one of the key figures in the image that's on the uh, roof of the church there. So work was being undertaken inside, literally while William's on the outside, unable to get in to take a look at it at this time. It was consecrated as church in 1842, so it was finally completed. Then, in in fact, right up until that moment of it being consecrated, there were still suggestions that it might be something else. There were thoughts that it actually might be turned into a railway station as well. But it is a church there now. Although, in a way, it's a bidding Congress, isn't it? You've got this... I'd say essentially very Roman looking building, but inside it's the epitome of a Christian church. So is there some sort of contradiction there with the Romans? I suppose you don't think it's contradictory, do you? If you go to um, the Vatican City, most of that is very neoclassical as well, isn't it? And you don't think, oh, well, this is all... But there's something about this being, I suppose it's it's a more basic sort of building. You look at it and go, that is a Roman temple. There should be depictions of Mars and Jupiter and Apollo and other Roman gods in there, not Christian uh, religion. I suppose these days I'd associate Christian architecture with something that's a bit more um, Romanesque or uh, Gothic, you know, rather like the cathedrals that we have in this country and not so reliant on the, uh, the kind of classical architecture quite interesting to note that it does sort of demonstrate the authenticity of William's account here, that at times he can't get in to see things that uh, he would have liked to have done because they were still being built. April second, Conservatoire des Arts and Metiers, at which, though my visit lasted for four hours, must be confined to a small space on this paper. It is a collection of models which by purchase and other means have become the property of the government and are here exhibited for the benefit of the public. Nearly all the various models I saw upon that occasion were of British manufacture and have been many years successfully in practice in my native country. I shall merely enumerate them without coming to any observation on the subject. There were steam engines of John Smeaton, Bolton and Watt, Fenton, Murray and Co., Henry Maudsley, Taylor and Martineau, the double cylinder of Vaughan, the double pressure of Wolfe and Edwards, marine engines of every description, locomotive engines of manufacturer of Stevenson, Rennie, Berry of Liverpool, Jones, Turner and Evans of Warrington, and murray and jackson of leeds paper mills flour mills gun-boring machinery pumps of every description cranes diving bells lifeboats agricultural implements silk flax cotton and woollen machinery machinery for rolling iron and drawing wire lace and stocking frames printing presses of all ages and countries in fact to a person acquainted with machinery and taking a pleasure in those things the exhibition is calculated to afford the highest gratification, and to the students it is of great use, and I consider great merit is due to the government in forming a collection of this nature. Just stop here to discuss William's descriptions of these various engineering mechanics. In a way, it's a little bit frustrating that he says I, uh, I will merely enumerate them, as he says, because in some ways I'd kind of like to have known what he thought a bit more about this engineering exhibition of course he he mentions in that list of people Bolton and Watt who I talked about earlier possibly being his employers but I don't know now I, I kind of think about it in the sort of way that he does mention them there and not then make any other reference at all maybe he suggests that I've gone down a bit of a red herring there and um it wasn't Bolton and Watt who he worked for I don't know obviously there's People mentioned like Stevenson when it comes to locomotives as well. I mean, it is true at this stage, really, most of the Industrial Revolution developments in technology and manufacturing were British at this time. So no doubt we were pioneering in that uh, regard. If you look up most of those companies that he mentions... Um, you will find some sort of reference to them on the internet. So um, you can kind of, if you wanted to, you could listen back and go through each one and you'll see each one might be a, have been an expert in marine steam engines and one expert in locomotives and so forth. But uh, there was one I just thought I should mention there. He mentions Henry Maudsley. I suppose there's two reasons I, I sort of thought I should bring him up. One is because he's um, known as the the founding father of machine tools. Now, seeing as my day job is uh, writing about machine tools, (laughs) I thought maybe I I should mention that. But also, actually, he is a very significant figure because, uh, actually, what does appear to be a fairly simple invention did really pave the way for a tremendous element of things that happened in the Industrial Revolution and which still have a massive impact on manufacturing today and the world we live in today. So without Mr Maudley's invention, well, I would have thought by now, hopefully someone would have thought of an equivalent, but if they had if they hadn't done um we'd be living in a very different world because his main invention that he's recognised for was as the inventor of the screw cutting lathe. So imagine up until this point, things like screws and bolts, if they were made at all, they were made by hand. So, um, you know, sort of a blacksmith made them and then they would chisel a sort of thread on them. But you can imagine there's absolutely no standardisation there. There's, You know, one bolt and its thread would be different from another. And so actually bolts and nuts weren't used very widely up until 1800. But then Mr Maudsey came along And he invented, if you like, a a machine tool, a a lathe, that you could mount the the workpiece, which would be the screw. And then it had a a mechanism that moved the cutting edge along the side of the workpiece to create a thread. And then this could be like a standardised thread, which would be the same every time it was made. And also then the nuts that were were made alongside it would have the same thread inside them so I think to explain the main principle it's really to do with the fact that the bolt or screw as it's mounted in the lathe as it rotates round and round and round that rotation movement is then linked by the mechanism to the cutting edge moving along the side of it those two things are linked precisely so as the bolt it's spun round and round and round in the lathe the cutting edge or the cutting tool is moving along in a linear motion along the side of the workpiece as it's cutting the thread and of course you can adjust the speeds and the gearing of it as well to create what they say call a different pitches of the thread so you can actually create different threads but that's the main, I think, thing to say about the screw cutting lathe. It's the, f- the fact that the, the linear motion of the cutting tool is linked to the rotational movement of the bolt or screw in the lathe as it's being cut. Actually, there were other versions of things before Maudsley's version, but for some reason his one seems to have been the one that really worked the best. I think his was the one that worked best for producing screws and bolts in, in volume in an industrial way. Basically, he made a machine that could make screws and, perhaps more importantly, bolts and nuts that had the standard same thread every time they were produced. So that meant that they were then interchangeable, which then meant that you could start bolting things together, and that's the basis of most of our manufacturing today. From something like a car right down to a mobile phone, it'll have screws and bolts in it, and it's very important that those threads on those screws and bolts are all exactly the same and can be interchangeable and the bolts are used and the screws are used and they fit each other each time and i can pick up another screw and i could pick up another nut and i could put it together and it would still work it's it's one of the founding principles of the industrial revolution so basically without his invention of nuts and bolts with the same thread with a standardized thread sorry and and the taps and dies also that uh, accompanied it to make threads into things like nuts or whatever it was you can cut a thread into any bit of metal if you want to put a bolt into it but without doing that the whole industrial revolution wouldn't have really got going so that was a very very significant invention he was a fascinating character old henry because he started off in the woolwich armoury as what they call a powder monkey uh, as a little boy running around filling the shells with gunpowder but he worked his way through the workshops of the Woolwich Arsenal but even at the age of 18 he was already showing his absolute prowess as an engineer and building machines and things to make other things and he seems to have been one of these people who just had a very inquiring mind. Later on in life he got very interested in astronomy and stuff as well and uh his company, Maudsley & Sons, they then went on to specialise in making marine engines. Their marine engine was what they called a side lever design, which meant it could be more compact and more easily put into the hulls of ships as a, as an engine, and it meant the, the beam bit of the engine was next to the cylinders. It's a bit hard to explain, really. I think the fundamental thing to just say is it meant it would be more powerful, but in a relatively small space. So, obviously, Henry Maudsley, built with an A at the end, Maudsley, but it's actually Maudsley. He is one of these very, very significant people in history who perhaps his impact goes a bit unrecognised because I suppose we just think of a a nut and a bolt or or a screw as being so basic and simple that we give them very little thought. But until you could produce nuts, bolts and screws in a way that was consistently the same every time, then they weren't much use. Of course, it paved the way then for so many more developments in industrial design, manufacturing, however you want to look at it, really. Next to the Place de Victories which is a large circular space at a short distance from the exchange, in the centre of which, on a richly ornamented pedestal, is a fine bronze equestrian statue of Louis XIV. On either side are two very pretty-looking fountains. Not less than ten streets all meet in the Place de victories. The shops and houses in this neighbourhood are all very good. In this vicinity are also many streets of arcades used by foot-passengers only, and covered in with glass. The display of goods in these places are of the richest and most splendid variety, and are generally crowded with people. Afterwards I visited the vegetable and fruit market, or the Market du Temple, as it is more generally called, on account of it being held in the great square of what were once the possessions of the celebrated Knights Templars, which order was abolished in 1312, and Philip the Fair in 1314 caused the Grand Master Malay and several knights to be burned in the Place Dauphin. Those two knights' templars were actually burned at a place called the Ile-Louvre, which was actually an island on the Seine, so it wasn't where William says it here. Louis the Sixteenth was also confined in the temple previous to his execution here. April the 3rd. This day I visited the two cemeteries of Montparnasse and Montmartre, which are very similar to that of pierre le Chase but of more recent origin. In the former one, a larger number of English are interred. It is also considered the most aristocratic cemetery of the three, there not being any common graves, and the monuments are generally of a more costly character. I also visited the Church of St. Roche, which is very rich in decoration, but the most curious part of it is the Chapel of the Cavalry, at the bottom of the building, which is fitted up to represent a dark cavern with the instance of the crucifixion. Groups of figures Rocks and trees are arranged in a manner calculated to cause the visitor to think he has made a mistake, and got either into a theatre or tea-garden. In one part of this chapel, however, is a marble figure of Christ on the cross, on which the light is very effectively thrown. One of the chief causes of me entering the church at that time was noticing a very splendid hearse at the entrance, accompanied by several morning coaches and i therefore found a coffin splendidly decorated and laid on a raised platform in the centre of the church and not less than 30 priests around it chanting the offices of the dead the music was solemn and very fine in one of the side chapels was a young couple attended by their priests entering the holy state of matrimony and which i take to be a rather tedious process in france as the ceremony lasted somewhere about an hour in another of those chapels one of the priests was baptizing some children so that business of all kinds for the priests was proceeding at once, who are, like the generality of the human race, not fond of doing their work gratis. Though at the same time, France is a country where the priesthood possess less influence than in any other. Being all paid by fixed salaries from the state, they are entirely dependent upon it, and are kept in the proper places, being the servants of the people instead of their masters and tyrants. One circumstance in this church I had almost forgot to notice were a number of men similar to beadles. I'll just explain that word beadle. A beadle, I don't know if they exist anymore, but a beadle in the 19th century Church of England was a kind of warder or church official who would patrol inside the building while churchgoers were there. Similar to beadles in England walking about the church, but instead of the formidable staff that ours carried to frighten naughty boys and little children, they was clad in flaming scarlet and had long swords by their sides. And with this, I bring another day's excursion to a close. Right, nearly at the end of this particular episode now. But I just thought I'll stop just to say a couple of things about that last section of William's journal. The thing he describes in this Church of Saint Roche in Paris obviously it's still there and it is a very impressive church when you go into it but he mentions this particularly interesting chapel of the cavalry and it's really been quite a hard thing to pin down sort of modern references to this description of the chapel that he describes as almost being like a a bit of theatre and trickery with trees and shrubs planted around to fool the viewer because there's hardly any references to it and uh, when you look for a modern picture of it it, there just don't seem to be many that exist although I have finally found a modern picture of it but all that really shows is that the chapel has changed since William's day to be less impressive if you like because he describes this thing of there being shrubs and rocks and things to full full of viewer, and I have seen a contemporary etching of it and it is a bit like a stage design, but a three dimensional one. If anyone's seen the old Wagnerian theatrical productions of a set designer called Adolf Appiah, so that was where they when they evolved from just having two dimensional backdrops to theatres and plays and things. And Adolf Appiah and another one, Edward Gordon Croke, they started to produce more three dimensional stage sets. And probably the sort of thing you'll more often see now when you go to a theatre, particularly a sort of theatre in the round or somewhere where there's a stage where it projects out into the audience a bit. So in this chapel, in the contemporary pictures of it, like this etching, the rocks, if you like, come out from the side of the the, the altar or where the images of Christ is on the cross sort of set back, if you like, in a sort of recess, but very far back. Then coming out from the front of that come these rocks that are sort of tumbling down and then there are figures, sculptural figures, that sort are of all adoringly looking up at, at Christ on the cross. So I can see why, at the time, William thought this is impressive, because it certainly is. It's like a... it would have been, anyway, like a kind of modern theatrical stage set on this altar. But now when you see the pictures of that bit, the bit of Christ in the recessed bit far back, and lit nicely, as William describes, that's still there, but this bit in the front of it has all been removed. It's just this plain arch. It's not this thing with all these sort of sculpted rocks and things that were there in the time that William's looking at it. So, um yeah, it's a rather sort of shame that was taken away. I've seen two paintings of it as well, where one painting is done from a sort of angle and you can see from behind the columns where these rocks are sculpturally almost like lava oozing down into the church. The rest of the church is very grand where the main hall of it is is very ornamentally designed as well but this particular a bit in the uh in the basement or sorry in the crypt of the church i saw one thing it says it's rarely open or something but even if you did go there looking for this impressive crucifixion scene with figures and models that william's describing i think you'd be a bit disappointed now if you see what's actually there now just to also mention this bit where william talks about the people of the church being not keen of doing their work gratis and then explaining that actually in France the priesthood are paid by the state and so they don't have to rely on getting donations from the people. Um, That's what he describes as being in their proper places. Now this is the beginning of a continual theme that we will return to and we will repeat often when talking about members of the priesthood and particularly the Roman Catholic priesthood. He definitely has a beef with that church and the way that it takes money from the poor to get donations towards the church. Later on in the journals you'll often hear him referring to how these members of the priesthood are basically getting fat and rich on the uh, backs of the poor parishioners that they supposedly are meant to be looking after it really is a an ongoing thing it's i don't know anything of what william's real religious background was i suspect he's sort of a maybe presbyterian quite protestant type of church goer so I think there's a lot of practices in the Roman Catholic Church that he either sees as being hypocritical, or just actually the ceremony and that of the church as being a bit uh, a bit over the top. You've got a hint of it there when he talks about the marriage ceremony lasting for an hour rather than what it would do in uh, maybe a more Protestant type of church. But uh, that is a that is the first inklings of this attitude that William has. That will come up uh, over and over again. Now when I look at it I think it's because he's living in Mexico at the time and when you get to the Mexican extracts of the journal it's something that comes up often in that and I think particularly his view of the church in Mexico of the Roman Catholic Church and the priesthood in Mexico is is a pretty sort of low one. He often considers them to be looking after themselves really and and getting donations from the poor rather than looking after their parishioners and um, there's a bit of it as, as well when he's in Italy so this seems a good point to end when William's actually finishing the journal himself here for the day I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode and I didn't bore you senseless with my explanation of Henry Maudsley and his screw cutting lathe That's one for the nerdy engineering types out there. I thought at the time it seemed a good idea to try and explain it. I'm not so sure now. As I say, I'm available through the various social media channels. Well, I say various, there's one Twitter that's probably the best one to contact me through. So that's Scott of The Historic at 3G Grand Tour. And that's the number three Grand Tour. And by all means, message me if you want any further questions, that you've got any other queries. Please get in contact. It's great to hear from people and get any feedback at all. And uh, if you message me, uh, I'll get back to you when I can. Which will be fairly quick, I imagine, because uh, let's face it, I'm not doing much else. So that's it. That's the end of episode eight. Do join me again for episode nine. I would say I'm averaging producing one of these about every three weeks. It is quite difficult to work around everything and get these episodes recorded. Ideally, of course, I'd like to do it sort of a bit more frequently than that. But episode nine will be a little bit more of William's time in Paris, but it is definitely he will be moving on certainly by the end of the next episode. It'll be interesting then to uh, start the journey down through France and then across the Alps to uh, Italy. So thanks very much for listening to this one. I hope you have enjoyed it and do tune in again.